0: There's much here. Let's dive in. So good morning again. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jay. Nice job. As always, I count it a tremendous privilege to be here with all of you as we dig in together into God's inspired, infallible Word. And may God and His Son and His Holy Spirit and His Gospel of free grace be magnified in our midst in all that is said and done here this morning. Our text for this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. You heard it read just a few moments ago in its entirety, so I am not going to read it again at this time, but we will work our way through it together. Matthew 12 comes, of course, on the heels of the end of Matthew chapter 11, which Pastor Scott preached on just a few weeks ago. And What Pastor Scott helped us to see was the following... We saw the sovereignty of God first. Jesus is clear that the Father reveals the truth of the gospel to some, like, say, tax collectors and sinners. And he hides the truth of the gospel from the wise and understanding, which in context is a reference to the Jewish leaders of his day. We see this same idea in other places in the New Testament as well. For example, 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul writes this, We speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are being abolished. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day were so blind, the gospel was so hidden from them, that they couldn't see the Jewish Messiah they had been waiting for for centuries, even though he was walking and talking and doing miracles right before their very eyes. And of course, as Pastor Scott said, And we have said before, all of this is part of the build-up to the great confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. We are slowly but surely on our way there. Secondly, Pastor Scott also pointed out the divinity of Jesus. As he, Jesus, unashamedly declares, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And third, Pastor Scott pointed us to the most gracious gospel invitation in all the scriptures. Jesus, the Savior Himself, says to those around Him, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, brothers and sisters, how does one follow up a text like that? Well, I'll tell you. The Gospel writer Matthew continues on in chapter 12, verse 1. Please, if you would look. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. So let's stop there. Soon after the events of chapter 11, Jesus and his disciples go walking through some grain fields. The Mosaic law had stipulations for Israelites to walk through other Israelites' grain fields and to eat their fill, but not to fill their pockets. We see this, for example, in Deuteronomy 23 25. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and it's on a Sabbath day, the last day of the week. Because of course it is. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Just do a quick page turning exercise through the four gospel accounts and you will find Jesus doing what Jesus does so often on a Sabbath day. We will see again in a few moments in verses 9 and following. Jesus goes to synagogue on the Sabbath to do what Jesus does. Jesus, listen, Jesus wants the interaction that we're going to read about in Matthew chapter 12. I want you to see that. He wants the confrontation with the Jewish uh, religious leadership. We see here that Jesus' disciples get hungry. They're men. They're walking around Galilee. They get hungry. This is not a surprise. And they begin to pick the heads of grain and eat. Now, this is interesting, I think. What we don't read here in Matthew chapter 12 is something like the disciples asking Jesus a question. Hey, teacher, we know it's the Sabbath and all. Is it okay with you if we pick some grain and eat? Apparently, they know it's okay to pick the heads of grain and to have a little snack on a Sabbath day. Verse 2 But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? The disciples were picking the heads of grain and eating them for a snack, but the Jewish religious leaders say to him, to Jesus, not to the disciples, the lawbreakers themselves, look, Jesus, look, teacher, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. The Pharisees go right to the source, don't they? Jesus wants a confrontation, and they're happy to oblige. Let's go, Jesus. Rabbi, so called, you want to have a debate about the Sabbath? We're game. Verse 3. But he, Jesus, said to them Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. A few things here. Let's break this down together. First, we need to see that when there's a doctrinal debate to be had, Jesus goes straight to the scriptures, which for him would have been our Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, we should do the same. You know, I just, I just want to state publicly that I'm very thankful for the Reformation. Post-Tenebrous Lux. After darkness, light. The movement of God himself during the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. Whereby the very gospel itself was recovered by men and women who gave their lives, who shed their blood, in many cases, to get us, you and me, this book, in our language. I would never downplay or belittle those sacrifices. At the same time, as a person, as a theologian who holds my fair share of minority opinions on things, I will not go to the reformers or any merely human writing as the final word on what I believe. Listen. The fact that you're all sitting here in a 1646 First London Baptist Confession of Faith Church means that you're not holding the Reformed party line on baptism either. So we should all just get over it. Semper reformanda. We always ought to be reforming. And by the way, as the ones who proclaimed sola scriptura, scripture alone, I believe that this mindset honors the reformers who came before us. We see here, please see with me, that our Lord says twice in verses 3 and 5, Have you not read? Have you not read? This is what good, faithful teachers do. We simply point you to the text of Scripture, and we show you what's already there. If you ask a Bible teacher a question, and he can't show you what's obviously already there in the text itself, you should be careful. So first, please note that in this theological debate, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus... God himself in human flesh does not make some authoritative pronouncement that comes down from heaven. Do you see that? He points them to the text of the scriptures. That's what we do here at Abiding Grace Church. I think that's why you're all here. Second, Jesus uses in this debate with the Pharisees two examples from the scriptures where righteous Israelites had themselves broken the law of God to their own benefit. Let's look at these together. The first example is King David, though he was not yet king of Israel. David, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, he eats the bread of the presence from the tabernacle of God, which, by Yahweh's law, only the priests were allowed to eat. Jesus says this in verse 4 of the text. Look at it again. Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. And please note, we heard it read from 1 Samuel earlier. The priest Ahimelech, willingly offers and gives David and his companions, all fleeing from King Saul, the bread of the presence to eat. Part of the argument Jesus is making here to the Pharisees is this. Listen, you chumps, Ahimelech thought it was okay in the sight of God to let David and his companions eat the forbidden bread of the presence. What about you? David, yes, the revered King David, broke the law for personal gain. David and his traveling companions were hungry. Jesus says, my disciples are hungry. And they're not even eating the bread of the presence. They're just picking heads of grain. What is your problem? Just in case that example is not enough to convince them, for there's no evidence in First Samuel 21 that what David did occurred on a Sabbath day. Jesus uses a second example in verse 5. Look at it please. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? What's this all about? What is Jesus referring to here? Well, put simply, the Mosaic law prescribed work for the Levitical priests on the Sabbath day. The priests in Numbers 28 were commanded to offer sacrifices on the Sabbath day, which required physical work and the stoking of the altar's sacrificial fires. And the priests and their families would eat of those sacrifices. The priests, in Leviticus 24, were commanded to replace the bread of the presence inside the tabernacle on the Sabbath day, which required physical work and a fire for baking. And the priests were certainly allowed to circumcise an eight-day-old Jewish boy on the Sabbath day, which we see Jesus himself describing in John chapter 7. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, essentially, it seems as though from the scriptures that being about the Lord's work is legal on a Sabbath day. Again, what is your problem? And then Jesus says something massive here in verse 6, doesn't he? Look at it, please. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. What does that mean? We're going to come back to that, so you've got to stick around for the end. Verse 7, we've seen before, it's a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. I desire mercy, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. And what I said at that time from Matthew chapter 9 is that Jesus is using the Old Testament text to indict the Pharisees and their external religion. And we can see that again here, can we not? That's what these examples of David and the Levitical priests are again showing. Jesus is saying here again to the Pharisees, you're focused on external obedience. And you've missed the entire point. And then verse 8, Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? We're going to come back to that too. Let's continue on and briefly discuss the next episode in the text because they're related. This second episode also takes place on the Sabbath, the same Sabbath day we were just talking about, verses 9 and following, Matthew chapter 12. And departing from there, that is, leaving the grain fields, Jesus went into their synagogue. And behold, a man was there whose hand was withered. And the Pharisees questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? Jesus said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? The obvious answer to this rhetorical question is none of them. They would all rescue their own sheep on the Sabbath if it fell into a pit. These hypocrites. Verse 12, Jesus says, How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, Then Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. Again, on the Sabbath, Jesus working, healing, doing good. And the logic, the reasoning he's using is airtight, isn't it? I mean, there's just no way that these Pharisees can't see when Jesus uses their own animals as a case study. Surely, surely now they realize their error. Surely now they realize that this is the coming one prophesied in the Scriptures. Verse 14. But going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. Again, the blindness of these Jewish religious leaders. They literally dare him to perform a healing on a Sabbath day. Why? Why? So they can accuse him. Then Jesus takes the dare and he heals a man with a withered hand right before their very eyes. Can you imagine that? Please do. And their response? We gotta kill this guy. Verse 15. But Jesus... Aware of this, aware of the fact that the Jewish religious leaders have now begun to conspire together to kill him, he's aware of this, he withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to make him known, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet will be fulfilled, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles, justice to the nations. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victories. And in his name, the Gentiles, the nations will hope. This is a quotation from the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah chapter 42. And Matthew here sees, please listen, the gentleness of Jesus. Not toward the Pharisees. Jesus will not be gentle with them. Just keep reading in Matthew after we're done here today but the gentleness of Jesus toward those who hunger and those in need of healing. His disciples, those who come to synagogue really, truly seeking to hear the word of God. Up here in Galilee, where Gentiles live, Jesus is not going to shout. Instead, he's moving about, finding those who are hungry and in need of healing. And look with me, what does it say? Verse 15. He healed them all. This servant of God from Isaiah chapter 42. The gentle Jesus. Gentle toward the bruised reed. Gentle toward the smoldering reed wick toward the religious not gentle but toward the broken and hungry and battered and the bruised the stinky you know don't you, don't you that a smoldering wick stinks toward these kinds of people our savior jesus was and is gentle. What should we take away from all this? Four things I would like us to see and meditate on this morning. May God open our eyes and hearts by His mercy and grace. Heading number one. What does Jesus mean when He refers to Himself as Lord of the Sabbath? Let me say a couple of things on this topic. First, we should realize that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath statement is a clear claim to deity. It was God himself who rested on the seventh day, Genesis 2, 2. It was God himself who blessed the seventh day and made it holy, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So please hear these words again this morning afresh. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a clear claim to his own deity. Think about it. What mere mortal would be so bold to say such a thing? You? Me? The Pharisees? No. Not a chance. Second, still under heading number one, for those of you keeping score. We should remember that at the end of the last chapter, Matthew 11, Jesus gave this incredible invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you... Rest. Do you hear that? Jesus says, I, I will give you rest. Those of you who have been following along in the Hebrew study know these things I'm about to say. In the Old Testament, under the terms of the Old Covenant, the covenant that Yahweh, the God of the burning bush, made with the nation Israel. In the Old Testament, God laid out for Israel and for us as pointers, as types, things that were designated as rest. Of course, one of these things was the last day of the week, the Sabbath day. It was designed by God at the end of creation, and listen, given specifically to Israel as a sign of the old covenant he had made with them, Exodus 31, verse 13. The end of the work week, symbolizing that after all their work, there was a rest to come. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that because Jesus Himself accomplishes all the work that is required for men to stand before a holy God, when we trust in Him, Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior of the world, when we trust in Him alone for our right standing before God, then we enter that rest following in the footsteps of our Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath. Sorry, I don't mean to shout, I'm just really excited. Hear again the call. Come to me, Jesus says. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the gospel call, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Savior of the world, calling men and women, made in God's image, to rest in Him by faith alone. No works are required. Third, under heading number one, if you are not aware, there's a great debate in the church about whether or not Sunday is now, has been transformed into the Christian Sabbath that for Christians, the first day of the week is now what the seventh day of the week was for national Israel. During the Wednesday Hebrew study, we've already staked out our position on this issue. One of the reasons, and there are a few reasons, but one of the reasons why we don't believe that there is a Christian Sabbath, that is, that there is one day out of the week that ought to be devoted to the things of God, is that our view is that particular bar is simply too low. Friends, God wants it all. It's all His anyway he wants all of your days he wants all of your time not just a Sabbath he wants all of your money not just a tithe he wants all of your body he wants all of your gifts he wants all of your talents not just your sexual organs though he should not be dishonored by those for sure from 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7 but he demands it all and why? why does he demand it all? because his son shed his blood in your law place under the God's righteous wrath he, Jesus Bought you. He owned you all of you. Or am I just making this up? First Corinthians 10:31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. Jesus Christ is not only the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of all of Israel's observed feast days. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And if you are His, then you are His. All of you. Every day. And that's exactly the way His people want Him. Is it not? Can I get an amen? Heading number two. We have to see that the Sabbath rest was given to Old Covenant Israel as a gift. In Mark's account of this event in Matthew chapter 12, Mark writes this. Mark 2 verse 27, Jesus said to the Pharisees, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. And in Exodus 16, we see Yahweh saying to Israel, See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Not as a burden, but as a gift. I mean, don't you think that if he or she could do it, your boss would take six or seven days of work for you, from you if, if, if he or she could get it? But Yahweh providing the manna for Israel to eat by His grace only asks that the Israelites gather it. Remember, they don't have to make it. They don't have to bake it. They only have to gather it, and only on six days of the week. On the sixth day, Yahweh provides twice as much as they needed. Why? So they wouldn't have to gather on the seventh day, so they could rest and enjoy Him, enjoy what He had provided. And by Jesus' day, for sure, the Jewish religious leaders had turned the gift of the Sabbath into a crushing list of rules. Go ahead, read through the four Gospels with just a view to what makes the Pharisees mad on the Sabbath day. We saw it today, didn't we? Picking heads of grain. Healing a man with a withered hand. It's almost funny to think about, if it weren't so sad. We have to kill this guy, they said. Brothers and sisters... Beware religious people who come along and turn the gifts of God into burdens. I'm going to talk a little bit about spiritual disciplines, you know, like Bible reading and prayer and coming to church on Sunday. Pastor Mike talks about these a lot. But Before we do that, let me present to you a couple scenarios to see what we might learn. So here's scenario A. You get a new job and a guy you just met at work, every day he feels like he just has to go home to his wife. You know, 5 o'clock rolls around and he stops by your office on the way out the door. He says something like, See uh, Gotta get home to see the old ball and chain. She hates it when I'm late coming through the door. I wish she would lighten up about it a bit, to be frank. What's happening here? Going home to see his wife after work has become a burden, it's just rules. It's just the right thing to do. Scenario B is this. This guy you just met at work hasn't been home to see his wife in three weeks. In fact, the thought hasn't even crossed his mind. That's a whole different kind of problem, isn't it? So let's talk about spiritual disciplines. People can fall into either of these same two ditches. Can they not? Scenario A, you read your Bible occasionally, you pray occasionally, you come to church on Sunday begrudgingly, and if one of the elders comes along and asks you about these things because we care for you, we say something like, hey, brother, hey, sister, how's your Bible reading going? How's your prayer life been? And you say something like, yeah, well, not great. I know I have to get back into reading my Bible, and I know that I should be praying more. And you're the guy in scenario A. Do you see that? I said earlier that we ought to honor those who came before us, who shed their blood to give us this book in our language. When for centuries, the very words of God were kept at a distance from the people of God. And we betray those sacrifices when our Bible reading becomes a burden. And more importantly, we ought to honor the one who went before us into the most heavenly place, who shed his precious blood, that we might be granted full and ready access to him and the Father. And we betray that once-for-all sacrifice of the Son of God when praying becomes a burden. It's like Bible reading and prayer and coming to church on Sunday morning to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the faith is just bad tasting medicine that somebody chokes down so that they won't die. This is not right. These gifts, God's word to us in English, full access to the one true God of the universe, fellowshipping with the saints, please, brothers and sisters, don't turn them into burdens. Listen, if you don't want to read your Bible, and if you don't want to pray, and if you don't want to come to church to fellowship with the saints, God help me, please, then, then don't. You might end up in hell when you die, which is obviously of grave concern to me. But please hear me on this. Do you want to know what concerns me even more than that? What concerns me even more than that is when religious people make the Savior and Master, Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood at Calvary so that I could be redeemed, I could be his brother and spend eternity in his presence, which is available to everybody within the sound of my voice. When religious people make the Savior and the Master out to look like some kind of cruel tyrant. Who makes people do things they don't want to do. So that in the end it looks like they're actually saving themselves. Anything that makes Jesus look like anything other than a good and gracious and merciful and loving master needs to be denounced in no uncertain terms. And I want you to see, don't you see that that's why Jesus is angry here in the synagogue? And you might say, Brother Steve, where in our text does it say that Jesus was angry? And I would say, Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Same incident. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. That word anger there, it's a common Greek word, not hard to translate. It means angry. And I'm not saying these things to you or to anyone on the internet simply to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm saying these things to you, please hear my heart because I and many others believe that a time is coming when these things will not be easy or even legal. And if you're the guy in scenario A, if you see these gifts as burdens now, my friend, you will not stand when the days get difficult. This is warning in love. And if you're the guy in scenario B, if you're here this morning and it's been three weeks since you've even cracked open your Bible, then that's a whole different kind of problem that we should talk about. The Word of God ought to be your food. Food. Prayer ought to be our IV line that transfuses live blood into our spiritual walk. We are your people. We're your people. Heading number three. What does Jesus mean when he says, Something greater than the temple is here, verse six. Frankly, a lot of things could be said, but I know there's lunch. Let me first just ask a simple question. What is a temple? Right? Sort of we're in Religious Studies 101. What is a temple? Put simply, a temple is the place where God dwells in the midst of His people. This is Jesus, the Son of God, fully human, fully divine. Jesus is greater than the temple in Jerusalem because He's the new temple. The place, rather, the person wherein God, the one true God, dwells in the midst of His people. And soon, friends, there will no longer be a need for that temple, Herod's temple in Jerusalem, to stand any longer. Because when the fulfillment comes, when the incarnate Son of God arrives, there's no longer any need for the thing or the type that was pointing to it. Those of you, again, who have been coming faithfully to the Wednesday evening Hebrew study know that this is essentially the entire point of Hebrews. The preacher of Hebrews pleading with his first century Jewish believing audience, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the Old Covenant sacrificial system. Don't go back to the fruitless practices of the temple because they are over Jesus once for all sacrificed, having made those things, that place, that building, obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13. That's what it says. And Jesus says this repeatedly to his first century Jewish audience. Something greater than the temple is here. It's almost as if you can see him in the text. He's beating his breast with his hands. In John chapter 2, literally standing in the temple at Jerusalem, Jesus proclaims, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. We must be able to see that all of it, all of the old covenant types, were only ever pointing to Jesus Christ. Let me give you one example. Inside the tabernacle and inside the temple, there was the bread of the presence, right? We've already seen this. Earlier when we discussed David and his companions being hungry, and Ahimelech the priest gives them the bread of the presence to eat. Let me ask you, what did the bread of the presence represent? Does it represent how Yahweh occasionally gets hungry, and so he needs his priests to provide bread for him to eat? In the words of the Apostle Paul, by no means. You know, my sermon title for this morning was almost, quote, Our God does not get hungry, end quote. No, the bread of the presence was not for God, it was for God's people. The priests ate it every week as a reminder of God's provision, not God's need. And Jesus tells his first century years and us through his word that he is the bread of life. Come down from heaven. John chapter 6, the message is the same over and over again. Something greater than the temple was there because the temple had been replaced by God Himself in human flesh. Jesus is greater than the temple of Jerusalem, destroyed now and never to return because now we look to Jesus and Jesus alone. And He is enough. All the promises, all the types, all the shadows, all of everything, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. This is our Jesus. Heading number four, and with this I'll close. Perhaps you think there have been some scathing things said this morning. Copy that. Perhaps you realize that you're the guy in scenario A that treats these precious gifts from God as burdens, as bad-tasting medicine that you force yourself to take to save your own skin. Or perhaps you realize that you're the girl in scenario B and you can hardly remember the last time that you knelt down in a quiet place to simply rest in the presence of the Savior. Please let me finish with this. This Savior, Jesus, Son of God, He is so gentle to those who are broken and who are in need. The bruised reed. Look please with me at verses 20 and 21 again. This Jesus, God in human flesh, a battered reed He will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out or snuff out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the nations will hope. The bruised reed, you know, where the stem is bent over, hanging by the slimmest of fibers. The bruised reed he will not break off, but he comes to heal. Even as he did to the man with the withered hand in that synagogue in Capernaum almost 2,000 years ago. The smoldering wick burnt to a crisp with no wax left in the jar, stinking up the place. See, what does the world do with those dead candles? They gag. They rush over to them. They douse them with water. And the world tosses them into the trash. But the gentle Jesus, look, what does it say? The gentle Jesus will not snuff such a stinky, smoldering wick out. If you know that you're the person in one of those scenarios, then here again, please the most gracious gospel invitation in all the universe. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the God of the universe calling the least and the lost into a blessed eternal fellowship with Himself. He, Jesus, will take all your sin and all of your religion and He will nail it to that same cross upon which He was hanged. All of the charges that are against the most broken of sinners, cleansed there by the precious blood of the Son of God, removed as far as the East is from the West, so that smoldering sinners can have a new heart that no longer sees Bible reading and prayer and church attendance and so many other gifts, so you will no longer see these things as burdens. But instead as the very things that will keep you alive. In this life, whatever comes. In this life, and in the next. May God Himself, by the blood of the eternal covenant, do all these things and more in the lives of those whom He has redeemed. All glory and honor and praise be to Him, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.